On Perspective this afternoon, I'm joined by three political guests, Rob Collister, Anne Corlett and Chris Thomas. This week, another fairly light Tinwald appears. Um, government business doesn't seem to be that urgent. Um, things like the housing crisis, climate emergency, cost of living. Are these important? So, I suppose the, the big uh, question which has arisen since the question paper was, um, oh, sorry, the order paper was uh, first published, was the whole issue of the um, the inquiry into the, um, the, or the, the what, what's the word I'm looking for, the industrial tribunal that was looking into the whole issue of how Dr. Ransom was uh, dealt with. Now, the chief minister has been given permission to give an emergency uh, statement or an urgent statement to Tinwald, uh, but but this actually raises some very very significant issues about the whole way in which government works and uh, how um, how how it uh, treats its staff. So I don't know. Um, I mean, guests uh, may or may not wish to comment on this, but uh, I think this is a fairly important issue. I think uh, clearly. The, 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 the whole review is, is, is ongoing. Uh, however, there are political implications to this, which perhaps uh, don't uh, in, in interfere necessarily with the, uh, the, the, the ongoing in, in investigation. So, uh, Rob Collister, I mean, what, what, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, good afternoon, Phil. Um, I think the, the report makes difficult reading. I think anyone who reads that 202 pages actually can't help but wince at some of the comments, some of the statements that have been made. However, we can't really expand too much on it. I think from my point of view, the one thing that has to come out at the end of all of this process, I think the Manx public have a right to know the cost of this. And I think that's one thing that I'd be asking for at the end of the process. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get drawn in too much into the contents of that report because I think it has to go through its process. And when it's finished, I think that hopefully the chief minister and the council of ministers and government as a whole will actually publish full details of the cost of this. And I think from a personal point of view, is we've got to make sure that no one gets a golden goodbye from this as well. I think the report has to fulfil its conclusion, but at the end of it, put all the information into the public domain. I think that's all I'm going to say at the moment on that particular um, statement. And call it, I mean, is there a problem with, um, I suppose, bullying and uh, harassment across the, the whole public service? Well, there is absolutely a culture of harassment and bullying being identified in DHSC over the last few years. Um, it's there, it's recognised. What I'd like to know, and, and who, uh, we don't know what the Chief Minister's going to say in a statement, but what I'd like to know is how are we going to fix this? What can we do to change the culture that's there and stop destroying people's lives in the way it has done? up to now because on the one hand we've got um i suppose uh, the public uh, and and indeed every, anyone who's read this uh, inquiry's conclusions uh, being very clear that uh, this sort of things shouldn't be allowed to happen 
And then on the other hand, you have uh, a, a reasonable proportion of the Manx public who, who take the view that civil servants are there to be uh, dictated to by the politicians and the politicians should show strong leadership and tell the civil servants what to do. And um, so in a way, the public is, is sort of suggesting that, that this sort of macho management style is, is, is something that should be done. So, so how, how, how can we overcome the, the, that sort of conflict between treating people fairly and making sure that they actually do the job they're paid for? It's difficult, isn't it? Because there's a difficult balance between um, being a politician and being an expert in in whatever field you're in, whether it be health, education, or um, we're coming in from a very low level of knowledge in some areas, perhaps only from personal experience in many instances. So it is hard to, I guess, get the, the public to understand what the balance is there and um, how much reliance there is on information from officers. But at the end of the day, it is down to the politician to check that out. Chris Thomas, you were fairly active on on Twitter about this uh, particular issue, and uh, it's fair to say that uh, you're maybe a little cynical that uh, the watershed that you're calling for is actually going to result uh, from from this uh, quite damning um, um, inquiry uh, conclusion. Yeah. So two real issues at the moment are the one that um, Mrs. Corlett's referred to, which is that there is a, a culture, even a tradition of bullying, harassment, unfair treatment at work, which can only be dealt with um, by a new way of management. And that links in with politics. I'll come back to that. The second uh, aspect we've got is that uh, is that medics have been disrespected, as is clear from what's uh, before the Employment Tribunal. But it's not only medics. Um, we've got another case that's going on in parallel to Dr Ranson's with Dr Kennington. And the suggestion is that um, you know, environmental health scientists are disrespected. And you don't even have to be a doctor with an academic qualification. There are lots of um, bus driver employment tribunal cases pending because the idea being that there's disrespect um, to professionals inside the uh, DOI bus division. So that's another second problem that we've got to address. And that comes back, as you suggested, to the political culture. You know, all politicians have strengths and all politicians have weaknesses. I remember when David, when Minister Ashford got his MBE, he was... Um, he was cited in the letter as being able to absorb medical information and present it to the public in a clear and understandable way. He had expertly answered questions at press briefings with kindness and humour in equal measure. He instilled confidence at a challenging time for all and has shown selfish commitment and an unquestionable sense of duty. All that's true. But his weakness, probably, is that he's got more than most politicians have got of those Walter Mitty t tendencies. He actually, as, is, as comes out in the evidence before the Employment Tribunal, he actually believes in himself far too far too much. All politicians do. That's in part why they become politicians. But some of it have got some of us have got less of it than others. And I think that's what you're hinting at. Douglas North is a different constituency from Douglas Central. But just after I came into politics, John Shimon resigned because it would have been suggested that he'd acted unlawfully. I went on the Manx radio probably at the time and said that made him a good candidate to be the next chief minister. I do hope 
that Minister Ashford respects himself and does offer his resignation to the Chief Minister because it can only do him good and it can only do Manx politics good. The alternative is far worse because as um, Kissinger used to say about Nixon, you know, the focus will become on Nixon in those days and the focus now for the next few months will be on Minister Ashford, not on what we need to do in terms of culture. Whistleblowing is also very important and I really do hope that somebody comes forward with a private member's bill to put whistleblowing firmly in the place because that's something that government hasn't done anything about as yet. The, the inquiry, though, did not conclude that Minister Ashford has done anything wrong. Um, so so why, why should he have well, to he, resign? Well, he answered that question when Manx Radio asked him it by pivoting the question. So basically he said he wasn't responsible for employment matters and he wasn't responsible for operations. That not, that's not quite what he said in the, um, in the tribunal because I did go along to the tribunal. Uh, Minister Hooper did. Minister Hooper was quite clear this was all operational. Minister Hooper more accurately stated what's in the government code, which is the minister is the department. The minister, Minister Ashford was on Mrs Magson's um, recruitment panel, so was I. Minister Ashford has often commented on um, human relations aspects of her career, of um, Dr Hewitt's career, of um, Dr Glover's career. He is very involved and he is that sort of politician that you know that makes himself the department because he believes he is the department. And so therefore, I think that's the issue. That's what it says in paragraph 80 and paragraph 81. It says that he was... Um, he was overly keen to repeat what civil servants were telling him. He was, um, he, you know, there's the aspects of his character that were discussed in those two brief paragraphs. This is not about him resigning because of the, the findings of the employment tribunal in the employment tribunal terms. It's about the um, character uh, that he has and the suggestion about his, uh, his ability to be unquestioning of civil servants, apparently, and consequently give evidence that wasn't actually credible according to the employment tribunal. And ultimately, they, they conclude he was misinformed. Rob uh, Collister, uh, should David Ashford resign? As I've said, I, I think we've got to allow the committee to um, conclude its findings. I think then government needs to pick up, as Anne said, and have a proper investigation of how we can actually make sure we get the balance right as politicians, that we hold civil servants to account, but also civil servants hold each other to account. I think that's very important. I know that there's the, that cliche about lessons must be learned, but I think in this it needs to go through the process and at the end of it we need to come out the other side. I'm not going to be calling for David Ashford's resignation at this stage. I want to see the report um, to its conclusion and then if need be um, it's up to the individuals involved if they feel they've got a duty to you know, to resign or not to resign. And Corlett, um, do you think the minister, I mean the ministers are, I mean the the. What uh, David Ashford said so far is that it is ultimately uh, um, the, the, not for the politicians to get involved in the day-to-day -day operation of the department in staffing matters. That is very clearly a matter for the chief executive to deal with. Um, so, so should the minister resign? I have some sympathy with him here in that um, I was in the department for the last five years. Um, I've questioned brought questions forward and always been told that, that it's not within my remit that I must stay firmly away from from operational or staffing issues. Um, so I, I think we, as Rob says really, I think we need to wait a little while and see exactly how this lands and, and, and as far as re resigning, that's really between Mr Ashford and his conscience and, and how he feels. He acted in all of this. And yet the, the difference, as, as Chris Thomas has sort of pointed out, the difference in this case is this was 
quite a a big issue. I mean, this was one doctor or a doctor uh, who was employed specifically to give good advice to the the, the government, suggesting mm. that something should happen in a particular way. And uh, effectively, she was being, uh, it, it would appear, as, as far as the inquiry is concerned, she, she was being uh, pushed to one side in a wholly inappropriate way by the chief executive. I mean, were you aware that this uh, spat was going on uh, whilst you were yes. in the department? Yes, it was very obvious. Yeah. Um, as I say, it's, it, it's, a, it's a difficult call, isn't it? Um, and yet, you know, if you're aware that this is happening, then then surely um, it, it it has got to the position that it, it does need to be dealt with by the politicians. Yes, and I think you know uh, we have constituency inquiries and complaints, and there's, you know, there's always two sides to every story. And did Minister Ashford listen enough to both sides? To be honest, I'm not sure he did. Chris Thomas, um, you, you were wanting to come in there. Well, no, it's, it's not a committee. It's not a report. The 202 pages is the final document. As far as I understand, it's sub judice because there are three subsequent uh, processes. Firstly, on a point of law, there could be an appeal, and I think that's quite a limited time frame, a couple of weeks or something. Secondly, the quantum of the employment tribunal case has still got to be decided, you know, who, who pays what. And then thirdly, there is this very serious matter about fabricating documents and not disclosing properly. And there again, political. And I go back to my basic point. What matters here are patients in the Isle of Man who go into the health system, people who use the care system. And we don't want the distraction of whether or not Minister Ashford should have resigned hanging over us. That's how John Shimon saw it. He went straight into Alan Bell and persuaded Alan Bell to accept his resignation. And that's where we are in the same way that Kissinger persuaded Nick and to resign as president of the US before the proceedings have gone on. We want to focus on bringing medics and other professionals back into the fold. We want to focus on getting right information to council ministers. I was so mad in March 2020, mad in the sense that I was furious because it was so annoying to be presented with information in council ministers from Mrs Magson every week and then to hear a few weeks later that it was the medics who told us when it wasn't. It was the senior civil servant in the DHSC. And so therefore they are structural issues, political issues and it would be so much better for, for Minister Ashford's future career. He is a future Chief Minister material. I'm not saying that he deserved his MBE but it would be so much better to focus this on the real issues and sort out the culture as the Chief Minister intends rather than whether or not Minister Ashford should resign or not. But there was more than one medic uh, giving advice. Um, the, we, we also had, well, and that's the uh, beautiful thing about it. Um, basically, Dr. Ranson set up a medical committee and it was a medical opinion. Um, you know, I, I, I moved very early on, just June, July, August 20th, I forget exactly when it was, that public health should have a committee around Dr. Ewart because it, was, it always seemed like it was just one person. Committees of the experts are exactly the way that we should be doing this. We should have a, cons a consensus com that comes together from the professionals. At the moment, they really don't feel as if they're being listened to. They didn't two years ago. They didn't four years ago. They didn't six years ago. I remember Mrs Barber being made responsible for culture by Minister Ashford at one point. And what happened to that? You know, it's a difficult problem. I'm not blaming Mrs uh, Barber, but this is something that's got to be fixed. It's something that's got to be fixed. Civil service have got to lose something because you need to have professionals fully involved in the future of healthcare in the Isle of Man and they don't feel like it. We've got to have a fair system to deal with whistleblowing and we've got to have politics where the minister isn't making all the decisions, especially not in Treasury. So while you were in the Council of Ministers, were you aware 
that there was a an ongoing dispute between uh, Dr. Ranson and the yeah, chief. Dr. Ranson wasn't allowed to come to speak with us. And then, you know, in, on that March the 16th meeting, I remember getting furious because of some things that were said about testing, complete mix up in the presentation we were having about the difference between shielding and self-isolation and quarantine. They're just they're all just terms that were obviously were not very well defined. And finally, all the discussion was about R, R naught, sorry about, um, sorry, um, RO rather than R0 and R1 and that made me so angry and I kept bringing it up, you know, it matters, R is at a point in time, it's zero, one, two, three, four, and all the discussion in the council ministers never got beyond for two weeks and I told that to a few ministers, few of them cared like I did, most of them didn't and it's all about the power of the civil service versus the power of the professionals, it's all about having the right way to go to to whistleblow. You know, I really do hope somebody comes forward with a private member's bill for whistleblowing and I hope we can set up an independent structure, perhaps even under the Lieutenant Governor or the Governor in Council, so that we can get ourselves out of the mess that we're in healthcare because so much needs to change in terms of the culture and the relationships. So, I mean, this is quite, um, quite big news, I think. I mean, effectively what you're saying is the whole of Council of Ministers was fully aware, or sh- at least should have been fully aware, that uh, the... Uh, the medical director was effectively being silenced by the chief executive. Yeah, and and and, you know, and that's all comes through in the 202 pages of evidence. You know, Minister Ashford says at one point the chief minister would have had a cardiac arrest if he'd have had two points of view. But there are always two points of view, and I, I for one, wanted to hear both those points of view and all the other points of view. Secondly, um, it's. Uh, you know, the chief minister kept saying that it was the medics giving the advice, it was the medics giving advice. It wasn't the medical committee, it turns out. It was the medical committee interpreted by the chief executive who was coming in on um, on teams from across for most of the time until I was sacked at the end of May 2020. Rob Collister, what's the point of, of paying uh, someone big bucks to give advice and then, then totally ignoring it? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I think Chris and Anna obviously have a lot more knowledge than I have on this. But the one bit of evidence that sticks out for me more than any is the fact that that Dr. Ranson felt she could only approach Dr. Allenson, um, you know, the Department of Enterprise Minister, um, as support. Now, that could be because he was a medical professional, and I think that's highlighted in the report. But again, that has to be a mechanism for political members, for ministers, when they are approached. They are, they should be approachable all the time. And if somebody approached me uh, on a staffing issue, I would try and help them without getting involved in the actual case. I would try and steer it. I would try and get help and support. And I think we've all done that as MHKs, where we've been approached by people to help in staffing matters. But what we've tried to do, as you say, it is operational, but to guide them to do it and to make sure we listen. And maybe that is the only failing that I can see on the part of Mr. Ashford, that maybe he just didn't listen when somebody says, there's a piece of there's a piece of information here you're not getting. I'm not sure how I would react in that situation. You've been a minister, um, Phil, and Chris has, me and Anne haven't. So we don't know what that sort of pressure is like at the time. But I did try to put myself in um, um, David Ashford's um, seat. But for me, I would have listened. I would have tried to help, but not get involved in the operational because we know there was a case, a famous case, that happened within Timwold. So it's not just within government. It actually happened within Timwold. So obviously, when we first came into our roles, we're very clear about what is operational, what is policy. So it's very hard. But as I say, I think there's got to be lessons learned here. I think there's got to be processes for when people contact elected members to say that I'm whistleblowing this or I'm telling about this or I feel this is is the correct. It's how that individual, and I think there's 24 elected members, and I think they all would have 
dealt with this differently and that's the problem so we need some guidance we need some clear understanding of how to deal with this in the future has there been any progress with the whistleblowing uh, committee's report uh, there was a report uh, last in the last tinwald uh, council of ministers came back i think in may last year uh, suggesting that uh, effectively they, they were in support of, of practically everything in there. There was a, few, a, a, a one modest amendment. Uh, it, has there been any <coughs> obvious sign, <coughs> any obvious sign of, of, of progress with that over the course of the last twelve months? No, I think there needs to be a lot that needs to be implemented, and I think that's the same for a lot of these committee reports. They they get through and they get support from Timwald, and then it's that stage where they just seem to get stuck on a shelf and, and gather dust. We have to make sure, especially now from this particular case that that comes off and we actually look at the culture we look at the procedures not just from an officer in government as I've said from a political point of view how people can feel they can approach it because I think most people do approach their elected members it's how those elected members then deal with that information and I know that myself you know, even just the Manx Utilities Chairman, I got a letter as soon as I came into post. The first thing, because it didn't have a name on it, I was able to take it to the executive, raise the concerns on the letter, take it to the board, have it reviewed, have it looked at, and then to try and implement some action to actually address the concerns that were being raised. That was very simple. It's when it's got somebody's name attached to it, the question is then how you get that person's permission to be able to change what they're asking. And call it... Um I mean, I, I, I've been a minister. I, I know I know how it works. And generally, uh, you do leave staffing matters to the chief executive. But I, I can't imagine a situation where people that the department was paying to give good advice to the politicians um, were effectively being silenced by the chief executive and as politicians, we wouldn't inter- intervene. I mean, I would have had a, a very stern word with the chief executive mm. and said, look, we, we pay this <clears throat> person for their advice. You might not like the advice, but it, you know, we should mm. be listening to this advice. Instead, uh, the minister, well, I don't know, the, the, the minister appears not, not to have uh, uh, taken any action and appears to have effectively said, well, that's a staffing matter, nothing to do with me. That's right. And I think that's why Dr. Ranson reached out to Dr. Allenton really was, because he was a fellow doctor and he was Minister of Education at the time. So perhaps that was a route into Council of Ministers. But even that didn't didn't sort of do anything to stop the situation or change the situation in any way. Chris Thomas, you, you, um, uh, you were in the Council of Ministers. Uh, did Dr. Allenton's interventions have any impact? Um, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember any report of that. I might have. I might have uh, missed it. But I was intrigued to read about that. I, I think I, you know, I think I would have expected that to happen. And people do reach out to me as well on similar grounds. And um, that's why I care. That's one of the reasons. There are three or four reasons why I stayed out of government. But one of them was because it's obvious this was going to break one way or the other. And um, we now need, need need to deal with it in DHSC healthcare because it's so important. But we also need to deal with it in um, environmental health. Um, all those scientists over there, we also need to deal with it in terms of bus um, bus drivers and in so many other parts of the public service. I, I tweeted that we had an existential crisis in the public service and the way to deal with it now is to really get to the bottom of what's gone wrong in terms of management culture and how we could set up a process on a small island which is difficult which is going to be hard to do um, to, 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 to deal with professionals who are intelligent um, passionate 
and uh, we've got to find some way whereby it's not we don't tear ourselves to pieces. And and how do you overcome this? I mean, the the, the, the situation where uh, it, it it's very clear that there are some people who work for the uh, for public service who perhaps aren't as efficient as they should be. They aren't as as active as as perhaps they they, they need to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- th- there is a need. For well, strong management, isn't there? So, 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 how do you overcome that? How do you how do you ensure that uh, staff are being properly instructed yeah. um, and uh, managed, um, and yet r- retain this uh, the, the the fine balance to make sure that they're not being mistreated? Well, we're going to have to have a special program about this, and you know, I'm not uh, I don't know all of the answers, but what I would say is the um, the public service uh, crisis of unfair treatment at work and whistleblowing is now there equal to the housing crisis and the uh, climate change crisis and the other crises that we have to deal with. You know, at first, it doesn't sound like it, but basically the, the situation in healthcare now is we are struggling to find people to come and work in our hospital and in, in, in our social care system. So that makes it a crisis for, for, you know, for real people. People are hearing if they don't pay and go somewhere else, they're on a two-year waiting list for operations. That's how it affects people in terms of environmental health. Um, you know, there are sorts of all sorts of issues from potential pollution that seem to have been suppressed by um, by, by by civil servants. So the, I don't, don't want the civil servants to hear me wrongly. There's some wonderful civil servants out there. There are the, the Isle of Man public service is filled with excellent people but we've got to change the culture but that's going to involve changing um, structures um, management styles and I do hope that there can be respect for the fact that we're in a crisis and respect for everybody as we move to the next stage. Well I did invite you all on here to talk about the Tinmold agenda so I, I think we'll, we'll take a break and then when we come back we'll talk about the, the relatively few items that there are on the order paper. <laughs> So before the the interval, we heard some fairly um, interesting uh, uh, discussion about the emergency statement the Chief Minister's um, going to make in relation to the uh, Rosalind Ransom um, investigation. But Rob Collister, I mean, you you must be quite pleased with one item on the order paper, the uh, the tourism strategy. Um, but the TT, um, you know, there's there's been mixed thoughts about the the revamp, the the the, the new TT. Um, it, 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 certainly, from many of the marshals' perspective, it, this this is your your version of the the promenade scheme, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, it's had a a very mixed response. The the the, the new way in which the TT is being managed. Well, tourism, as I say, I'm very pleased that we've got this strategy going to Timwald. It's the first strategy that's been presented to Timwald since 2004. Many of the, the challenges that we're highlighting in this report, believe it or not, they're the same challenges that were highlighted in 2004. You know, the lack of quality bed stock, the core visitor attractions, um, problems with recruitment and retention of staff, cost of travel, seasonal market and the need to improve communications. They were the, the high, they were the sort of challenges back in 2004 when we look today. Again, the same one, you know, we need to look at the cost of travel. We need to move away from a highly seasonal destination. 
uh, tourism, you know, the tourism sector again is looking at difficulties with recruiting to staff. That That's the negatives, but I feel we've got a real chance here to seriously look at the island's tourism offering over the next 10 years. And it is a 10 year strategy because we need to recover, we need to reposition and we need to grow again the visitor. Prior to um, obviously COVID, which is well documented, the island was welcoming over 330,000 visitors and they were spending around 142 million pounds. And we were moving significantly into a better position. Unfortunately, COVID came. With regard to TT, again, prior to, you know, we've had no TT the last couple of years. Um, again, in 2019, we welcomed almost 46,000 visitors and the numbers are looking really good for this TT. And we were welcoming around 16,000 to the classic TT as it was and the Manx Grand Prix at the time. So it's it really is a good improvement. Obviously, the, the, I want to put on record my sincere thanks to all the marshals, the medics and all the army of volunteers that are stepping forward to, to deliver this year's event. It's great to be back. I think it's a good news story. Yes, we've carried out a serious review of this event because we do need to keep generating money. We do need to make it more professional. And I do sincerely thank the Marshals Association for undertaking all of the training. Yes, there's been some disruption within the organisation, the Marshals Association, but that's for that's their argument, not us. Ours is the department. Ours is to try and deliver it. But I'm very grateful to all of the Marshals that have stepped forward, have done the extra training to make it safer for our riders, to make the event safer because the event continues to evolve. And I think we should never forget that, that the event continues to evolve and we need to make it safer. We need to generate more income, but we also need to make sure that we're improving the experience for our visitors when they come to the island. And I suppose very briefly then, because there was quite a lot of criticism uh, from the the marshals, various marshals, possibly the marshals. There was an internal structuring um, argument which was carried there was a review carried out and they'd carried out some changes I was made aware of them very late in the day and I tried to step in and help and my offer for help is still there should the Isle of Man Marshals Association want my help but I believe they've now got some legal advice they're trying to address those concerns my focus now and I think the department's focus is to get this event underway you know, in a couple of days, in a few weeks' time, to get this TT off the ground and let's have a very successful um, TT because we've got some of the probably the most events um, um, from a hospitality point of view happening this TT. If we got two weeks of dry weather, we're going to have a real fantastic event. I trust, I promise you that. And are we going to have a scoreboard? The scoreboard, I, I, I'm actually very excited. We got planning permission for the scoreboard. We just now need to find the money. And I'm not going to repeat the difficulties I had to try and get money out of Treasury. The department's looking at ways of financing this. I'm hoping there will be more changes in 2023. And one of those will include the new scoreboard, which is delivering our promise, which is to make it like for like and have that feel about heritage, culture and everything else. I'm really excited that that will be in the ground come 2023. It's it's quite... Um frustrating i'm sure for any politician being engaged in in these matters but i i certainly recall us discussing the refurbishment of glen crutchery road and the need to get rid of the old scoreboard probably when i was infrastructure minister the first time round so that's at least 12 years ago and it is um it's, it's hard i think sometimes for the public to understand how you know you, you if you know 12 years ago that this needs to be done and you've had two years where there's been no TT 
ideal opportunity to get this sorted. Absolutely. 2018, we were told it had three le- three years left, and then we started to plan. But the, the scoreboard was part of a bigger master plan for the whole area, a £40, £50 million development. Unfortunately, COVID came and we've had to scale back. At that stage, we then had to look at replacing the scoreboard. So the time 2021 came around and we needed to bring down the scoreboard, we just weren't quite ready. So we had to start again just on that isolated piece for that area. And that's what we've done. It has now gone through planning. Planning's been accepted. Treasury's been difficult, but we've worked with our colleagues in Treasury and within the department. I'm hoping it'll be in place for 2023. And and in terms of your tourism strategy, you've got two pretty strong um, uh, reasons why people might wish to, to, to come to the Isle of Man, perhaps more so than, than, than they would have been uh, two or three years ago. The first one, obviously, is COVID and the fact that people have been uh, very worried about going too far from home because uh, they, the, the thought of being locked down in a, in a different country is, 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 is a concern. Uh, so, so that's a positive. And, and also the, um, the climate change, you know, we, sh- we quite frankly, if, if we are to believe all the recognised scientists all around the world, then, um, you know, we should be cutting our, our, our carbon emissions and flying away for holidays uh, halfway around the world really is, is something that we should yeah. not be encouraging. I think people are looking a little bit closer to home. I think the way people travel has changed over the last few years. So we are in absolutely the perfect destination to actually to capture that market. I think it's worth mentioning as we sit up in Douglas Head here, Douglas, the whole of Douglas was built on the back of the tourism sector. And I think we should never forget the legacy that tourism has played in the Isle of Man. And I think we can revigor ourselves and I think we can reposition ourselves. I, I, it's an extra 170,000 visitors. It doesn't sound too much when you say it like that, but it's going to be an incredible amount of work having to be undertaken over the next 10 years. But we believe we can deliver it because it also benefits locals as well. When we have more tourism offering, we get more visitors, <coughs> the more the activities and services that the benefits lo- uh, benefits locals as well. So I'm really excited by this. I think we've got to grasp it. It is ambitious, but I think we can deliver it if we get everything right, especially around the airlines, our connections to the Isle of Man. You know, we've only got two connections in and out of the island. We've got to improve them. We've got to improve the quality, the experience for people, but also telling people, instead of always just being so negative on just an isolated few things, we need to speak up the Isle of Man and actually help all of us have a duty to promote our island. We've got an incredible island to explore, so let's get out there and sell the island and let's see if we can increase our numbers over the next 10 years. Must be frustrating, though, for you to, to read that the challenges are pretty much the same as they were um, 20 years ago. Um, are we ever going to get a, a, a luxury hotel on the Lord Street site? Um, are we ever going to get uh, cheaper flights um, to the island? Well, I think, again, if you look the, in, in between 2016 and 2019, we actually had investment in three new hotels. So we were making the right direction. We were taking the right direction. I, I think, again, cost of travel, open skies maybe need to be reviewed because um, open skies did deliver lower flights 
but then what happens is it affected the frequency of those flights so we've got to get the balance right maybe pay a little bit more but make sure the frequency is there we keep seeing the headlines of flights being cancelled we need to get regular flights here people are confident in we need to get the price right and then also more importantly we need to increase the quality and we also need to change the type of accommodation being offer, um, being on, on offer because people's um, pockets and budgets and expectations have all changed over the last 20 years. So we need to move forward. We're, we're in a very different, we're in a low position at the moment, but it's one that hopefully we can bounce back with um, post-COVID. I don't know whether either of our guests have any challenges to the tourism strategy. It would appear not. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I'll and, take and, that as two votes. Yes, it's obviously <laughs> you're onto a winner there, Rob. Um, and it and it is. It's it's a, it's a really important issue um, because, of course, there's there's much more to. It's not just the economic contribution that tourism gives. It's also the whole social life that uh, we get by having an active uh, mm. tourist industry because it keeps the restaurants going. It keeps events happening. Uh, so so it's it's well, more if you take, than just if you take TT the amount hospitality tourism is desperately in need of the TT but we also need a successful 2022 tourism season and there is a, 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 we have hundreds of events going on throughout the year we do need to grasp it we do need to make sure that people have long-term employment opportunities in this sector and that's one of the other things that was highlighted in 2004 and again in this report is the skill shortage and we've got to address those and actually say to people that there is long-term employment opportunities in this sector if you want to grasp them. Anne Corlett, um, the Economic Development Department has, has produced a very lengthy and uh, very um, exciting looking uh, departmental plan. Um, I, I spent some time, probably longer than I, I, I would have cared, trying to find some new policies or, or, or direction in there. I'm sure there are. Um, I, I have to say, when I got to the end of it, my uh, former Russian colleague's comments came to mind, uh, meaningless drivel. Um, I'm not sure that that's entirely fair, because I'm sure there's, there's some really good stuff in the, uh, the, the plan, but when... The Chief Minister came to Tinwald with our island plan and mentioned that there were going to be these plans that had to be voted on by Tinwald. I kind of hoped that there'd be something a little bit more meaty in the plans. Uh, the plans really pretty much tell us what we already know. Yeah, I mean, the departmental plans are to, are to flow from the, the island plan and it's for each department to committing to drive forward the actions in their plan and to provide a full update to Timwald each year after that. Um, and there, there is a huge range of sectors covered by Department of Enterprise. Um, I suppose for, for me, yeah, I, I, I suppose just for general reading that that particular department plan is a little bit long and a lot of it does seem business as usual, to be honest. But I think... <coughs> For me, the key priorities for the upcoming for the upcoming year include the delivery of the TT, which is underway, and the visitor visitor strategy, which is to be debated on Tuesday. Rob's going to bring that. Uh, for me, it's work on the island's air links, including the development of a of an air service strategy, uh, working on regeneration of our island's towns and villages in collaboration with the. Manx Development Corporation. Is, is there actually going to be a budget for that? 
well, well, they're up and running. Mm. Actually, Chris and I have had a, a, a really quite good meeting with them over the nurses' home um, developments, and um, they were quite open to suggestions and, well, mostly. <laughs> Parking, I think, is going to be an issue around there, but that's another another matter. So, um, yeah, so the other things that that interest me are actually working across government to bring the childcare strategy. I think childcare is hugely important and it does need to be a joint strategy across department with education and probably health too because they regulate the, the nurseries and preschools. Um, and, and I suppose the important thing uh, in, in relation to this. I mean, economic development is so important to everything else that we do across government. Um, you know, the, the everyone wants the best possible health mm. service. They want the best possible education service. They want, actually, to have a reasonable amount of money spent uh, in maintaining the infrastructure on the island. And none of that can happen unless there's sufficient money coming in. Is is the economic development plan, is it is it radical enough to actually significantly uh, sort of boost the economy or, or is it just a kind of a, a it, it felt more of the same to me uh, I didn't really feel there was a, 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 a great uh, step uh, forward with this yeah and, and you know actually when it comes to Timwood this week if, if that's the general feeling then absolutely we need to to go back and have a, have a rethink about whether we have gone far enough on things really and because actually I know it's a huge difference from the departments I've been in before this is a real mind shift for me because health and education are about providing services whereas Department of Enterprise are about creating the you know putting money into the into the treasury really in order to provide services so it's a whole different mindset and I think sometimes we do have to be brave um, and that can be difficult too sometimes because it is Department of Enterprise is speculative sometimes uh, risk risks have to be taken but risks have to be taken if we're going to well, the department really step up creates the environment and I think mm. people we should always never get that you know it's responsible for finance for digital for business you know for visits TT as Anne's already said aircraft registry ship registry central registry you know enterprise support finance legislation locate Isle of Man mm. marketing and business and policy and strategy so we are the department and I, I'm actually being very proud to work in that department now for six years and it does create the environment we do have to take the risks the problem is when we do take a risk and we get something slightly wrong we we do get absolutely slated for it you know the 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 love card is one that's politically you know even though i think it's a a two or three year strategy we've set the seed we've set the foundation we now need to see if that can develop and actually achieve anything if not then we look at something else but we've got to take these risks and we've got to be a bit bold but what we've got to do is allow the, the public to allow us to actually take these risks on, on their behalf to try and create that environment, as you say, to grow the economy. Because when things get tight, you either cut back or you try to grow your way out. And that's what the department's all about. And, and of course, this is the, 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 the problem with uh, government. You know, the, on the one hand, the public um, demand that, that action is taken, that things are moving forward. And yet, on the other hand, as soon as anything goes wrong, um, they're, they're very quick to, to look for someone to blame. Uh, Chris Thomas, are you taking enough risks with the housing board? Oh, um, with, with the housing board can't take risks because we have no power. 
we will have a member of staff by the end of July because as long as Treasury um, do what I think they're going to do, which is to fund a two-year limited-term appointment, we also have a, a great number of people around the government who are working from the side of their desks to help us because the Housing Board's job is to optimise policy, to bring policies together, to make people work together, and I think we're doing that quite well, um, very well in fact. So I'm not going to preempt what I say on Tuesday, but I've got no... Um, shame in our housing action plan the um the dates that are very close i think we're going to meet in terms of um of actions and i'll be making more announcements about that on tuesday so i do think we um we've accepted issues in terms of um understanding the problem so very early delivery is what's called an objective assessment of housing need that's all about helping people to downsize when they're older it's about thinking through whether we need bungalows or whether we need flats whether we need two bedrooms or three bedrooms whether we need them in douglas or whether we need them outside and that's been a complete gap in the isle of man for decades and i do think that we've seized the um, bull by the horns, and we're we're, we're very close to be, to putting the data together and drawing up terms of reference, so we can have a professional standard, objective assessment of housing need. Secondly, people have been. Um, messing around with for years about the crisis of homelessness and I think um, we've got a very important announcement to make on Tuesday about a commissioning light process uh, within 12 months working with the DHSC very closely to to take things forward and in terms of um, affordable housing I think we've got a great announcement uh, to make about um, shared equity schemes and alternatives which we've been working on with the Department of Infrastructure so we are being bold I know you think we're just driving along at 30 miles per hour but in actual fact what we've laid before Tim Wood is an action plan and I think all of the um, issues that need to be tackled are probably covered in there but I'm very very respectful of my colleagues and if they've got other issues in Tim Wood that come up that we should be taking into account we'll incorporate those in the action plan. Just looking over at uh, Mr Cullister, you know Mr Cullister talked about um, dilapidated properties in the question earlier on and what we've done is we've had a consultation with local authorities a closed consultation, we've, got, we've had the feedback and in essence what we've heard is that local authorities are a bit frightened of using the powers they have and so we're beginning to think we need to think about statutory guidance or even just informal guidance or perhaps even providing a service to help uh, local authorities fulfil their legal duties it's, because it seems to be... It's only the cost though, Chris. It's, it's the cost that yeah. scares them because they're having to use ratepayers' money to enforce um, some some sort of initiative to get the work done. In which case then, you know, clerks and ratepayers have got to... Uh, to grow a pair, or they've got to concede that they're never going to be able to take uh, to take a res responsibility. So they've got to delegate it to somebody else, or we've got to change the laws well, to somebody else. Now, now that you're moving on to clocks, I hate to say it, but <laughs> uh, we are approaching the end of the programme. I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, listening to our guests, Rob Collister, Adam Corlett and Chris Thomas. Uh, some fairly revelatory uh, discussion, um, certainly in the earlier part of the programme. And I will, before the music runs out, give a shout-out to the member for Arbury, Castletown and Maloo, Mr Moorhouse, who is asking a really good question about uh, when are we going to introduce a rates escalator to increase the amounts payable on void or derelict properties. Um, a good question and something that I seem to remember I asked um, back in 2003 when I was first elected. 